My favorite Wikipedia entry begins, Ronald James Reed was an American philanthropist, investor, janitor, and gas station attendant. Reed fixed cars at a gas station for 25 years and swept floors at JCPenney for 17 years. He bought a two-bedroom house for $12,000 at age 38 and lived there for the rest of his life. He was widowed at age 50 and never remarried. A friend recalled that his main hobby was chopping firewood. Reed died in 2014, age 92, which is when the humble rural janitor made international headlines. 2,813,503 Americans died in 2014. Fewer than 4,000 of them had a net worth of over $8 million when they passed away. Ronald Reed was one of them. In his will, the former janitor left $2 million to his stepkids and more than $6 million to his local hospital and library. Those who knew Reed were baffled. Where did he get all that money? It turned out there was no secret. There was no lottery win and no inheritance. Reed saved what little he could and invested it in blue chip stocks. Then he waited for decades on end as tiny savings compounded into more than $8 million. That's it from janitor to philanthropist. That is from Morgan Housel's fantastic book, The Psychology of Money, which I feel like has formed many of the foundational principles that I think about the psychology, literal psychology of how we manage our money and how we interact with our own money. So this is really a collection of stories. I'll be jumping around memorable stories like the one I just read you, but it has some great lessons around long-term financial survival, money buying you really freedom as the ultimate end goal, history repeating itself over time, and judging yourself based on how well you'll sleep at night. So this book, it is the second time I've read it. It is an incredible book. I highly recommend it to everyone, no matter who you are. So let's jump right in to Morgan Housel's lessons in the psychology of money. I believe that we think about and are taught about money in ways that are too much like physics with rules and laws and not enough like psychology with emotions and nuance. To grasp why people bury themselves in debt, you don't need to study interest rates. You need to study the history of greed, insecurity, and optimism. To get why investors sell out at the bottom of a bear market You don't need to study the math of expected future returns. You need to think about the agony of looking at your family and wondering if your investments are imperiling their future. So a great way to sum up one of the themes of the book is Voltaire's quote, history never repeats itself, but man always does. And I think this was a lot of the purpose of Morgan Housel's book. He wanted to understand how people make 
the same psychological mistakes, these mistakes behind emotions and nuance, like he said, rather than the actual rules of finance. Because we know that oftentimes in behavioral finance, we break the quote unquote optimal rule, the optimal decision because of these psychological fears, whether it is taking on too much debt or simply selling out at the bottom of the market. So this is something that we've seen again and again. History never repeats itself, but man always does. And I think this is why there's so much value in reading these types of books that talks about the mistakes we make over and over again. This is why I recommend a lot the Euphoria episode and the Bull episode of the dot-com bust, because both of those talk about these repeated mistakes, these financial mistakes that people have made in history, and you can relate that to today's financial catastrophes over the last 15 years post-COVID or the great financial recession, we were able to see the things that man does again and again, the same mistakes that we repeat again and again. As Housel says, general things like people's relationship to greed and fear, how they behave under stress, and how they respond to incentives tend to be stable in time. The history of money is useful for that kind of stuff. So we know there's a lot of value in studying this history, like reading a book, Psychology of Money or the Euphoria book, for example, because we're seeing the mistakes people make again and again. And likewise, in the business setting, I think there's a lot of value as well in understanding the things that will not change, the things that humans will continue to want, the things that will repeat over time, because those are the things that you often want to prioritize in your business. This is something that Jeff Bezos stressed in the earlier days of Amazon, where reporters and people would ask him, what do you think will change in your business in 10 years? And his response would tend to be, instead of asking what will change, I try to question what will not change? What will definitely not change? What will customers still want in 10 years that Amazon should be optimizing for today. So for him, he realized customers will always want convenience, they will always want low prices, and they will always want vast selection. And those were the three points he optimized for instead of worrying about a lot of business risks that may not be on the table yet. So I think these lessons, history never repeats itself, but man always does. There's so much value in studying those historical books, especially Psychology of Money has many stories. Charlie Munger's speech on the psychological biases, that's episode three, that has many great lessons as well. And there's great approaches to thinking about your business in the Jeff Bezos sense of what will not change, what will stay consistent amongst my customers over the long haul. I'll move on now to the next really important idea which was that what seems crazy to you might make sense to me. Housel says, your personal experiences with money make up maybe 0.0000001% of what's happened in the world, but maybe 80% of how you think the world works. So he's saying we over-index on our personal experiences, even though this is clearly a very small subset of actual 
real-world experience. Everyone has their own unique experience with how the world works, and what you've experienced is more compelling than what you learn secondhand. So all of us, you, me, everyone, go through life anchored to a set of views about how money works that vary wildly from person to person. What seems crazy to you might make sense to me. I absolutely resonate with this idea. I grew up personally in a real estate community, somewhere that everyone around me invested in real estate, knew about real estate. Whether you're a doctor or a dentist, a lawyer or accountant, you probably owned or did something involving real estate on the side. So much of my upbringing had this natural view towards real estate as a great investment class. And real estate as well is an investment class that is less risk averse, I would say. You typically don't want to lose money on any real estate deals. So I was brought up with this mentality, this way to approach investing. Whereas if I grew up in the Bay Area surrounded by tech startups, innovation, a lot of companies failing, but those few mega winners, billion type winners, then that's a completely different type of investing landscape and investing model. The Bay Area tendency is the VC and startup approach. There's going to be a lot of moonshot products and many of them will probably fail, but the one that succeeds hits it out of the park. It hits it big time, right? But in a certain sense, when I went and worked in the VC space for a few years, I think a big struggle for me was having the risk mentality of real estate and then trying to apply that in the venture world of high startup failures. It's a completely different landscape, and it showed that my experiences weren't used to this new model. And this is a common thread that I think we have to keep in mind when we're investing, kind of what suits our personal experiences, because it's very hard to change your own deep-rooted and learned experiences. Housel says, I could read about what it was like to lose everything during the Great Depression, but I don't have the emotional scars of those who actually experienced it. And the person who lived through it can't fathom why someone like me could come across as complacent about things like owning stocks. We see the world through a different lens. So like I was saying, it's very different to look at a real estate deal and you see a deal that you are expected to make money on if you break even after a few years that's considered a failure compared to a VC bet, a startup bet, where one out of every 10 or 20 or 50 are likely going to fail. It's the power law game. Real estate, it's not a power law game. It's a very risk averse game. So this idea is really important because it gives us a different perspective as we're giving advice to others to really take into account what are their personal experiences? What are the factors that are going to shape how they view investing? As Housel says, we all do crazy stuff with our money, but no one is crazy. We all make decisions based on our own unique experiences that seem to make sense to us in any given moment. Think about what experiences shape the risks that you're willing to accept in your day-to-day life, in investing or just allocating index fund money, whatever that source may be, 
and really optimize for what makes sense to you. It doesn't have to be the broad strategy, what the masses are doing. I'll transition now to Morgan Housel's next core lesson, which is centering on never enough mentalities, the aspect of greed that could end up killing us financially over time. It gets dangerous when the taste of having more money, more power, more prestige increases ambition faster than satisfaction. In that case, one step forward pushes the goalpost two steps ahead. You feel as if you're falling behind, and the only way to catch up is to take greater and greater amounts of risk. So Morgan Housel, in his book, he tells this really inspiring story of a Kolkata-born orphan. His name is Rajat Gupta. And this orphan, Rajat Gupta, he miraculously works his way up through the American corporate ladder and ends up becoming CEO at McKinsey and Company, considered certainly one of the best consulting firms in the world. So he works his way up. He becomes the CEO of McKinsey. He's built up a $100 million nest egg. So he is successful. He has the title, the reputation, worked his way all the way up the food chain in the US. But since in his great position, he's being surrounded by billionaires, he's enamored by all these billionaires around him, he started wanting to reach the billionaire club. His ambition started rising and he wasn't simply satisfied with that big hundred million net worth and his CEO at McKinsey title. So he starts doing insider trading to try to reach the billionaire status even quicker. He's taking this get-rich-quick scheme. He has access to a lot of insider financial people and insider executives. So he takes the quick path, the easy path, and eventually he ends up going to jail. He ends up getting caught for insider trading, ruining what was a great life because he wanted to become a billionaire. As Housel says, the ceiling of social comparison is so high that virtually no one will ever hit it. This was a very stark lesson for me, especially coming off just two episodes ago, because Harry Macklow, we saw in that episode, he wanted to join the pantheon of New York elite real estate families, and he kept taking greater and greater risks, kept putting his big asset, the GM building, on the line, and eventually he had to lose everything just to barely escape bankruptcy. So now we're seeing another story of Rajat Gupta, who had a great life. You could say the same thing about Harry Macklow. Both of these individuals had great lives. They were plenty successful. But unfortunately, those negative social comparisons, looking around and seeing the people who are wealthier than them, kept causing them to take more aggressive positions and take more risks. One of them was purely illegal. Obviously, insider trading is illegal. The other was taking way too much leverage, way too much debt to finance his real estate purchases. And they both ended up basically in the same position. So it is so important for us to avoid these never enough mentalities and these social comparisons that are so natural. I'd imagine you, if you're like me, you're probably someone who wants to constantly be getting better and improving every year. It's James Clear's idea. 
let's get 1% better every year. And I think the distinction here is the intrinsic versus extrinsic aspect. It's something where we definitely always want to strive to get better. But the key distinction I think Housel is making is that we don't want to fall into the negative or toxic trap of social comparisons. Once you look at someone higher than you and you have that never enough mentality around, I'm not wealthy enough, I'm not rich enough, the next Jeff Bezos or whoever is higher than you on the ladder is beating you out, that is where you start taking these really dangerous and aggressive risks. Okay, so this next section is one of my favorite sections of the book. It is about money buying you freedom. The best thing that money can buy you is freedom. So Housel says, the highest form of wealth is the ability to wake up every morning and say, I could do whatever I want today. People want to become wealthier to make them happier. Happiness is a complicated subject because everyone's different. But if there's a common denominator in happiness, a universal fuel of joy, it's that people want to control their lives. The ability to do what you want, when you want, with who you want, for as long as you want, is priceless. It's the highest dividend money pays. This idea, the best thing money can buy you is freedom, is definitely something that I optimize for. I think it's incredibly important to be working on cool projects in your work and your professional life, things that you're passionate about, you're interested in, but it's also really important, at least to me, to have that freedom to spend time with friends and with family, to travel, to do different types of activities, to exercise. So this freedom aspect is truly priceless. And I also believe, I deeply believe that if you have freedom to choose the types of projects that you want to focus on, you will end up working much harder on those projects. One of my favorite podcasters, his name is David Senra of the Founders Podcast. He had lunch with Sam Zell, certainly one of my idols. And Sam Zell, he gave Senra this piece of wisdom that I think is just incredible. He said, Go for freedom. Freedom allows you to control what you work on. If you control what you work on, then you can work on what you love. If you love it, you will do it for a long time. If you do it for a long time, you will get really good at it. Money will come as a result. So we're seeing both from Sam Zell and from Morgan Housel, the true value of money, the best thing money can buy you is freedom. It gives you freedom in the way you choose to live your own life, the way you spend your own time with family, with friends on great projects. And as you get to choose the better projects that more align with your own interests, then as Samsell says, you will love it. You will spend more time on it. You will get even better at it. And then the money will come as a result. And the other aspect that Housel really likes to emphasize in the book about money is the opposite side of things, where he talks about the materialistic possessions, the materialistic tendencies of people who want to make a lot of money. This is where we see people have big, vast ambitions to make money 
just to spend a lot of money so they could show other people, they could show their peers and their neighbors that I have a lot of money. And Housel, he gives this great story. He calls it the man in the car paradox. He says, when you see someone driving a nice car, you rarely think, wow, the guy driving that car is cool. Instead, you think, wow, if I had that car, people would think I'm cool. You might think you want an expensive car, a fancy watch, and a huge house, but I'm telling you, you don't. What you want is respect and admiration from other people, and you think having expensive stuff will bring it. It almost never does, especially from the people you want to respect and admire you. When I read this, the first thought I had was this idea called resume versus eulogy virtues. And it is where a lot of people will forget the nice shiny toys and the money that you have, but they will truly remember the way that you treat them, how you interact with them, how you take care of them over time, spend time with them. Those are the true eulogy virtues. How are people going to talk about you if they're giving a eulogy? How did you treat them? Whereas the resume virtues, like who has the most money, materialistic possessions, those are the things that people tend to forget over time. So Housel, a lot of this book emphasizes the value of freedom, the value of spending your money, saving your money, investing your money, so you could build up that freedom to control your own life and your time. And then he's also talking about how these materialistic possessions don't really add up to much. For most people, it doesn't deliver the true underlying psychological gifts that they're seeking, like respect and admiration. And that's certainly not to even mention that Housel says spending money to show people how much money you have is the fastest way to have less money. We know that if you're building up a lot of money and you want to spend it all to show people that you're wealthy, in reality, all we're seeing is that you have spent that money. That means you don't have it anymore. He says, if you see a Ferrari driving around, you might intuitively assume the owner of the car is rich. But as I got to know some of these people, I realized that wasn't always the case. Many were mediocre successes who spent a huge percentage of their paycheck on a car. Someone driving a 100,000 car might be wealthy, but the only data point you have about their wealth is that they have a 100,000 less than they did before they bought the car, or a 100,000 more in debt. That's all you know about them. So to cap off these excellent points by Morgan Housel, we know that the best thing money can buy you is freedom. True wealth, not financial rich aspects, but actual wealth is accumulating the money over time, saving and investing enough that you have this nest egg that gives you ultimate freedom and control over your life. You're able to spend time however you want to spend it, whether that's spending time with family, working on the passion projects that you have, work projects that you think are amazing, or simply traveling, exercising whenever you want. And we see the materialistic aspect of simply spending away a high income just to gain that clout, just to gain 
reputation, that often leads to those tough times. As he says, when you see someone driving a Ferrari or a $400,000, $300,000 car, they own a massive house, all you really know, you may think they're wealthy or rich, all you really know is they have that much less in their bank account now. The next short story and lesson I really want to touch on is about compounding. We've all heard the phrase, compounding is the eighth wonder of the world. In this short story, it will really focus on Warren Buffett's compounding success. As Housel says, as I write this, Warren Buffett's net worth is $84.5 billion. Of that, $84.2 billion was accumulated after his 50th birthday. $81.5 billion came after he qualified for Social Security in his mid-60s. We're seeing it's not just that Warren Buffett averaged greater than 20% compounded returns, but the true quality, the true compounding is that he's done it for 70 years. We really underestimate the value of exponential growth over time. As Housel says, if something compounds, if a little growth serves as the fuel for future growth, a small starting base can lead to results so extraordinary they seem to defy logic. It could be so logic-defying that you underestimate what's possible, where growth comes from, and what it could lead to. We've seen the value of compounding across many books. Any type of investment book definitely touches on the value of compounding. And I even think of in the personal sense, when we read Atomic Habits, James Clear's whole idea is if you get 1% better every day for 365 days, that leads to a 37 times improvement. So the whole factor in this is that you have to do it consistently day in, day out, or year in, year out for the compounding to really get most of the juice, right? And Warren Buffett, his true quality, his true skill set was not just earning 20% returns for a 20 or 30 year career. It was doing this for over 70 years. Housel would say, consider a little thought experiment. Buffett began serious investing when he was 10 years old. By the time he was 30, he had a net worth of 1 million or 9.3 million adjusted for inflation. What if he was a more normal person, spending his teens and 20s exploring the world and finding his passion, and by age 30, his net worth was, say, 25000 And let's say he still went on to earn extraordinary annual investment returns he's been able to generate. 22% annually, so great returns, but quit investing and retired at age 60 to play golf and spend time with his grandkids. What would a rough estimate of his net worth be today? Not $84.5 billion, but $11.9 million. 99.9% less than his actual net worth. So the biggest takeaway I got from this Warren Buffett story about compounding was that we should be paying so much more attention to the durability of high returns. Who can sustain high returns, 15, 20% returns 
over a 50-year period rather than who has the highest singular growth rate or singular return rate for a given year. If you focus on the company that grew 100% or had a 100% return on investment in one given year, but they're not able to sustain that for even five years, they're not going to benefit from the real power of compounding. We see the real power in compounding comes from that consistent growth or that consistent return over 10, 20, 30, 40, in Warren Buffett's case, 70, 80 years. It's clearly important for us to spend our time thinking about what makes the companies we're investing in, the companies we're looking at truly durable, what makes them defensible, what are the moats or the powers that they have to protect themselves from competition, and not simply who was the fastest growing last year. Housel sums this up in an amazing passage. He says, but good investing isn't necessarily about earning the highest returns because the highest returns tend to be one-off hits that can't be repeated. It's about earning pretty good returns that you can stick with and which can be repeated for the longest period of time. That's when compounding runs wild. I read this and I just think survival is the number one priority. Survival is the number one priority. You have to give yourself the cash buffers and build in defensibility into your business to make sure that you could survive, stay in the game long enough that compounding can work wonders. Compounding only works if you give an asset years and years to grow. It's like planting oak trees. A year of growth will never show much progress. 10 years can make a meaningful difference. In 50 years can create something absolutely extraordinary. But getting and keeping that extraordinary growth requires surviving all the unpredictable ups and downs that everyone inevitably experiences over time. To instill this lesson in our minds, Housel shares this really sad story of Rick Guerin, who in the old days, in the 70s, Rick was the third partner of Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. So those are the famous combo, investing combo that we know today. And little do you know, they actually had a third partner, Rick Guerin, who was a great investor as well. But the really sad thing about this story, the aspect that relates to survival being the number one priority, is that Rick Warren, he had a similar never enough mentality from what we discussed before. He was in very much of a rush to get wealthy. He wanted to have high returns quickly, have the highest returns in the game. And unfortunately, that rush to get rich, it led to him leveraging his portfolio. And once the market went down again, once it tanked, he had to sell out his entire portfolio at the bottom. He actually had to sell his Berkshire holdings to Buffett himself in the downturn. And this is where we see Warren Buffett's number one rule. He says often, rule number one is don't lose money. That is rule number one. It is not average 20% returns or average 20% plus returns. It is don't lose money. 
as Nassim Taleb says, having an edge and surviving are two different things. The first requires the second. You need to avoid ruin at all costs. We know that Warren Buffett has warned us on numerous occasions, and I've stated on this podcast many times, we never want to be dependent on the kindness of strangers. We always want to have the cash on hand so we can survive those downturns, and thus it lets us continue compounding for the long haul. And we saw earlier the true value of compounding. It may come in year 30 or year 50 or year 70. You really have to survive the long haul, survive years and years and years of consistent compounding for it to really work wonders. Now, another core concept that Morgan Housel talks about that very much relates to this priority number one of survival is that we as people should optimize for how well we'll sleep at night. He says, academic finance is devoted to finding the mathematically optimal investment strategies. My own theory is that in the real world, people do not want the mathematically optimal strategy. They want the strategy that maximizes for how well they sleep at night. One example he gives when he's explaining this concept is that there are studies showing that younger people should use margin loans to juice the numbers of their retirement accounts. And part of these studies show that if you use margin loans and the account even goes to zero, there's a big downturn, you get called on the margin and your account ends up zeroing out. If you just restart the process, mathematically, you will still end up with a better return than the slow and steady investment process. But Housel, he talks about how, yes, mathematically, that may be the optimal approach, but people, everyday people, psychologically, don't want to deal with this. He says, no normal person could watch 100% of their retirement account evaporate and be so unfazed that they carry on with the strategy undeterred. They'd quit, look for a different option, and perhaps sue their financial advisor. So we see that optimizing for how well you sleep at night can mean many different things. It could mean when you're investing, you want to have a margin of safety or that type of room for error in your valuation buying companies below what you even conservatively think are worth, or it could be including contingency funds in your budgets. Housel would say, Bill Gates understood this well. When Microsoft was a young company, he said he came up with this incredibly conservative approach that I wanted to have enough money in the bank to pay a year's worth of payroll even if we didn't get any payments coming in. So Bill Gates, he's also optimizing for survival. He's optimizing for how well he'll sleep at night. We're seeing keeping these contingency funds, building in this margin for safety, it lets you survive the long periods, the tough periods, the downturns, and that ensures that you are able to continue on. We know that Many other industries, like the airline industry, they like to build in redundancy 
and specifically avoid single points of failure so that they could survive the worst case scenarios. As Housel says, most critical systems on airplanes have backups and the backups often have backups. Modern jets have four redundant electrical systems. You can fly with one engine and technically land with none as every jet must be capable of stopping on a runway with its brakes alone without thrust reverse from its engines. It's very common for investors to feel a social pressure, kind of a societal pressure to try to maximize returns, put all your chips on the table, invest all of your capital so you could get those full returns. The problem, though, is that when that rare event happens, like we said, the rare pandemic, recession, or whatever life-changing event that does end up occurring every 10, 15, 20 years, when that hits, that's when we're forced into the fire sale mode. And we know that if we reach a fire sale mode, as we've learned from Harry Macklow's episode, the vultures are just going to be waiting to feed on your carcass. So this is why it's so important for us to optimize for how well we'll sleep at night. Choose the types of strategies that will give you some wiggle room. It gives you that margin of safety. And to me, when I read this, I'm also thinking optimize for survival. Think how you could build in some redundancy, some margin of safety that ensures if the worst thing happens, I'm still going to make it through. The next idea that I want to pull out for you is that volatility is the price we pay for market-level returns. As Morgan Housel says, like everything else worthwhile, successful investing demands a price, but its currency is not dollars and cents. It's volatility, fear, doubt, uncertainty, and regret, all of which are easy to overlook until you're dealing with them in real time. So I think there's so much insight to that one line. Volatility is the price we pay for market-level returns. If you are going to benefit from the long-term effects of compounding, then you have to sit through years of swings in a stock and downturns. As Housel advises us, we really must be patient and sit through these drawdowns if we're going to benefit from long-term compounding. He would share, Monster Beverage returned 319,000% from 1995 to 2018, so a little over a 20-year period, 319,000% among the highest returns in history, but traded below its previous high 95% of the time during that period. If we were the owner of this monster beverage stock, it would be very agonizing at times to hold it when you knew that right now it may be below the previous all-time high or it's fallen off a cliff a little bit, maybe the revenue slowed down, whatever may have happened to the business. You may think that this volatility is a sign for you to sell, but Housel stating this is really just an entry fee to get market-level long-term compounding returns. This is necessary, surviving and putting up with the volatility in public stocks if you are going to benefit 
from compounding. And when I read this, the first thing I think of, it may have been Howard Marks who said this, or maybe it's just common wisdom at this point, but I think time in the market over timing the market. I think it's so important that we pay that fee for volatility, we sit through the drawdowns, give ourselves the margin of safety, that margin of safety we just discussed so we can survive long periods. And then over time, 50, 60 years, that's where we see the true benefits of compounding. As we know, time in the market is the real juice. Time in the market over timing the market. So the next really powerful idea that Morgan Housel shares with us is that stories sell stocks. And we'll discuss how these stories can oftentimes lead to euphoric bubbles. As Housel says, stories are by far the most powerful force in the economy. They are the fuel that can let the tangible parts of the economy work or the brakes that could hold our capabilities back. We know that when we are investing, we use stories crafted around companies and our own confirmation bias to justify the types of investments that we believe in. And this is something that Ed Thorpe, the famous investor and gambler, warned us about. He shared, Stories sell stocks. The wonderful new product that will revolutionize everything, the monopoly that controls a product and sets prices. When he hears such tales, he should ask a key question. At what price is this company a good buy? What price is too high? So the other night at dinner, our family was talking about the recent Kava IPO. Kava is the Mediterranean health food company kind of inspired in that similar mold to Chipotle. You kind of go through the line and pick what you want. And we were comparing Kava's IPO in their business to Sweetgreen. As you know, Sweetgreen also is taking a similar mold to Chipotle with salads. So we were comparing these two companies. They're pretty similar, similar concepts, similar health focus. And my mom asked a very insightful question. She said, if they're unprofitable, how do they raise cash? How are they able to raise so much money? And we all looked at each other and it was kind of an easy consensus. Well, they're selling a story. They're both selling a story. Each of them are selling a fairly similar story that we are this health food community. We're devoted to real ingredients. We're able to sell them at higher prices and we're able to attract these customers who care about these types of qualities, these health food qualities. In Sweetgreen's investor presentation, literally the first page has the Sweetgreen story. So they know, most companies know, ultimately they're selling a story. And oftentimes, these stories that we latch onto as people, this is what causes the initial signs of bubbles. Bubbles can start from a small kernel of truth, a business can truly be great performing, but other people start imitating, other people start following the masses and believing in the common story. Like everyone saw that Kava is this health-inspired food brand, maybe it could become like Chipotle, which has become a successful company. And immediately their stock doubled. Within, I think the first day, 
their stock doubled in value. So that's where we see the asset prices start to rise because all these different investors come and they believe the story. They are investing out of FOMO, fear of missing out, and they want to believe the big story. As Housel says, what do you expect people to do when momentum creates a big short-term return potential? Sit and watch patiently? Never. That's not how the world works. Profits will always be chased. So we know that as human beings, we are naturally these imitation creatures and we seek out stories that we could believe in. We know stories are the most powerful force in the economy. Stories sell stocks. So we go out, we see what the masses are doing. We see what our friends are investing in, for example. We take our cues for them and we follow them into the same companies. We believe the same stories. But oftentimes, that herd investing is how we get ourselves into trouble. As John Kenneth Galbraith said in the Euphoria episode, the speculative episode always ends not with a whimper, but with a bang. We have to ask ourselves, why is this the case? Why do we follow stories so much? Why are stories so powerful? As Housel says, Why do people listen to TV investment commentary that has little track record of success? Partly because the stakes are so high in investing. Get a few stock picks right and you could become rich without much effort. If there's a 1% chance that someone's prediction will come true and it coming true will change your life, it's not crazy to pay attention just in case. We're seeing how we like to follow and believe these stories because partly we want to get rich quick. If there's this 1% chance that we're going to have a life-changing type of investment, then we're going to believe the big stories. We're going to follow the masses into a stock or a particular trend just for that chance at those large gains. And companies, I think companies certainly know that their goal is to sell a story to the public. Right now, I look into the public markets and I see that NVIDIA, phenomenal company, been around for almost 30 years, I want to say, probably 30 years. NVIDIA is fully leaning into the story of AI, artificial intelligence. They have become the AI company supplying the GPU chips for AI processing, and that has helped them reach a $1 trillion valuation. That's remarkable. They've reached a $1 trillion valuation and they very much leaned into the story of AI in this moment of time that everyone wants to be an AI investor. In NVIDIA, in the past, they were always a successful company or oftentimes they were a successful company, but for many years of their history, they were pitched as a gaming company. Their GPU chips were mainly provided for gaming over the last 10 years. It's started to have real machine learning applications. But in the past, they were always pitched as a gaming company, GPUs that are used in consoles or PCs for gaming. And gaming is a huge industry. Gaming is almost a $200 billion industry. But that story never made NVIDIA a trillion-dollar company. This AI story has taken them to heights that they probably never thought were even possible. 
So this is the power of stories. A story in NVIDIA's case can take them to trillion-dollar valuation. A story in Kava's case can have their stock jump by 2x in the span of the first day being public. We always see that we will follow these stories blindlessly because we have that hope, that 1% chance that this will be a life-changing investment. This is so important to understand, and I think it's so important to be cautious of in investing. Stories sell stocks. Slowly, we start believing these stories for that 1% chance of success, for life-altering results. And then, as we know, the bubbles start forming, and the speculative episode ends with a bang. So the last section that I want to talk to you about from Morgan Housel's book is that tales drive everything. And I think there's a couple great takeaways from this section that relate to a lot of what we've discussed already. Not only do a few companies account for most of the market's return, but within those companies are even more tail events. In 2018, Amazon drove 6% of the S&P 500's returns. And Amazon's growth is almost entirely due to Prime and Amazon Web Services, which itself are tail events in a company that has experimented with hundreds of products, from the Fire Phone to travel agencies. Apple was responsible for almost 7% of the index's returns in 2018, and it is driven overwhelmingly by the iPhone which in the world of tech products is as taily as tails get. So right off the bat from this, you could tell we live in a power law world. If you are interested in power laws, I highly recommend the book, The Power Law, and those three episodes I did in the beginning of the podcast. I think it's 10, 11, and 12. But it's so clear from this, we live in a power law world. The market returns are oftentimes driven by a few big companies, like recently the big tech companies. And even within those companies, we see that the big differentiators are products that they've made after hundreds of other failed attempts. And to me, when I read this and when I think about tails driving everything, I have two core takeaways. The first one is that we have to consistently keep trying and failing, putting out new products if we are to succeed in the future, if we are to reach that ultimate tail event, that huge power law type winner, we have to put out a ton of output. And I think this is a great story of Jeff Bezos. He knew that in Amazon, they want to constantly be experimenting with new projects. As he said, Prime, Amazon Web Services, now Amazon Ads are driving a lot of their return. They constantly invest in new products and projects on their way to success. And they don't worry as much about the failures along the way. You have to be able to tolerate the failures. One of their big failures was the Fire phone. It was a phone that Jeff Bezos released, I think it was 10 years ago or so, maybe a little bit longer. And Jeff Bezos, when he talks about this, he says, if you think that's a big failure, we're working on much bigger failures right now. I am not kidding. Some of them are going to make the Fire Phone 
look like a tiny little blip. So we can see clearly, even from Jeff Bezos, with tail events driving everything, we have to be okay with failure and constantly put out new projects, innovate, put out new output if we are to hit that tail event in the future. We cannot be scared of failure and stop ourselves from releasing new projects or just stay complacent if we expect to have a tail event. We have to constantly be releasing new output. And the real second takeaway that I got from this, tails driving everything, is that we have to survive long enough to reach that tail event. At the Berkshire Hathaway meeting in 2013, Warren Buffett said he owned 400 to 500 stocks during his lifetime and made most of his money on 10 of them. Charlie Munger followed up, if you remove just a few of Berkshire's top investments, its long-term track record is pretty average. So Charlie Munger, he's clearly saying, and so is Warren Buffett, that a few tail investments have driven a lot of their returns. Things of the like of Geico and Coca-Cola have driven a lot of tail returns. Apple over the last seven years or so for Berkshire Hathaway. So they've also, in the public markets, benefited from these tail-like returns, but the key for them is simply survival. And we've talked about this so much over the podcast. I think it's really probably the most important theme from this book. It is that you have to survive those downturns, survive long enough for you to hit those out-of-the-park winners, those tail power law-like events. So Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, they've built their company, Berkshire Hathaway, to survive the downturns so that when that one in 400 opportunity comes up to the table, they are able to actually swing. They are still in the game. I want to close off with a few thoughts around Morgan Housel's personal money management strategy, which centers around independence and simplicity. And we will see in his personal money management strategy, a lot of the themes and ideas that are reflected in the book. So Morgan Housel, he talks about owning his house outright. He doesn't have a mortgage on his house, even though he does earn an income. He could be paying for a mortgage, but he decides not to. And they keep about 20% of their assets in cash all the time. And when he mentions these two things, owning a house without a mortgage, in keeping 20% of assets in cash, he says that he gets a lot of scrutiny from others. People may come up to him and they feel like he's being financially irresponsible. Why won't you take out a mortgage? You can afford a mortgage. So to some people, this may feel irresponsible because Morgan Housel, he's not quote unquote optimizing his returns, but we see this core lesson from him this is what lets him sleep at night. This is what feels best to him. And that is the personal psychological aspect of managing your own money. He says, we do it because cash is the oxygen of independence. And more importantly, we never want to be forced to sell the stocks we own. That immediately reminds me of Buffett's quote, which I'll paraphrase here. He basically says, when companies have cash, they never think about it. 
when they don't have cash, it's the only thing on their mind. It's the only thing they could think about. So we know from Housel, he cares about what will help me sleep at night. His most important thing, the best thing money can buy him is freedom, that independence and freedom. So to him, he's okay with not having a mortgage on his house. He's okay with keeping 20% of his assets in cash. If it means that he is more financially secure, he doesn't have to stress over volatility as much, or he doesn't have to worry that he's going to lose his home, then that's the game he's playing. And that's really one of the main insights, one of the main takeaways from this book. It is that we all have to realize we are playing different games. What seems crazy to you is normal to me. We have to determine personally, what do we want to gain from our own money? Is it independence? Is it keeping up with the Joneses, buying nice things and keeping up with the people around you? Is it top investing returns? Each person clearly has different goals. And if you want just the simplest strategy for him, he really optimizes for simplicity in his investing. If you want the simplest money management strategy, he says, I think for most investors, dollar cost averaging into a low cost index fund will provide the highest odds of long-term success. We know that if you save enough, you have a high savings rate, you invest it in index funds like Housel, Warren Buffett, Ed Thorpe, they all advise us to do, and then you never have to think about it, then you are going to end up pretty good, right? You would probably have a good result. So for Housel, my investing strategy doesn't rely on picking the right sector or timing the next recession. It relies on a high savings rate, patience, and optimism that the global economy will create value over the next several decades. I think that's a great place to leave it. Determine what game you're playing, optimize for how well you'll sleep at night, and choose survival as the number one priority. This has had some insightful lessons around money and the psychology of money, so I highly recommend you read the book. I hope you learned a lot from this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please share it with a friend. That would be amazing. Thanks again for listening.